Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. If you're looking for an entertaining read for summer, you might want to check out the new book, 100 of the Worst Ideas in History. I recently talked with one of its co-authors, Mike Smith, whose day job is running his California-based advertising production agency. What's the genesis of, of this? I mean, we're, we're, we're sitting at the bar and saying, hey, let's come up with, this sounds like a great idea. Let's do a book on, on the worst ideas well, in history. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Jeff. And yes, that's pretty much how it started. Uh, my co-author, Eric, and I are both uh, writers, not surprisingly. I run my own video advertising agency. And Eric is a uh, former speechwriter for President George H.W. Bush. He's written for the L.A. Times, New York Times, CBS News. So we kick around ideas uh, all day long. We have a great appreciation for what it takes to come up with a good idea and a lot of empathy when a seemingly good idea goes terribly wrong because God knows we've come up with a, quite a few ideas that have gone wrong. So we were at a party at my house um, some time ago, and we gathered around the kitchen island and started telling these stories. Eric had a couple in his head. I had a few in my head about things that, that seemed to be good ideas, but, but again, went terribly wrong. And, uh, you know, the, people, the adult beverages were flowing, and the people at the party gathered around, and we could judge from the chuckles and the oohs and the ahs that maybe we were on to something. It's, it's kind of the Cliff Clavin, the guy sitting at the end of the bar, you know, from Cheers, sure. who seems to know everything, and he's trying to top everyone. It, it became that kind of a contest. So we figured... We either have an idea for a book or a college-level drinking game. I'm not, I'm not sure which. But after about three years of research, we came up with 100 of the worst ideas in history. I was going to ask, uh, you, you, three years' worth of research, um, how did you decide what, what went into the book? It, it was an interesting process because, you know, so many, uh, so many books out there that are kind of in this category— usually focus on one thing. Our idea was to go across sort of a broad breadth of, uh, of different kinds of topics. So we've got, you know, ideas from pop culture, from, uh, you know, ideas that have uh, started wars, that have sunk countries, that have wrecked companies, uh, uh, scuttled careers, lost millions of dollars, and even endangered the earth. And we sort of put them into categories, and we put them into the book in a very short, easy-to-read uh you know, two-page spread with photos per uh, uh, per story, and in the audiobook version, which just came out, no story is more than two minutes. So it's a very easy read if you're driving or exercising uh, for the audiobook, or if you're in a if you're in the bathroom, frankly, or in a waiting room or something like that, or traveling for the summer. Uh, we decided to to sort of lay it out that way and make hopefully history a little bit more engaging, a little bit more fun a little bit more personal, and whenever possible, funny, because we like to laugh at the misfortune of others, to yeah. be honest. Uh, what do they call that, schadenfreude? <laughs> it's, it's that kind of feeling is, is in the book. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't think we, I don't think you can find new Coke anywhere anymore. Uh, oh, new Coke. My gosh. You know, new Coke is an interesting idea because we call it uh, new Coke's uh, product launch goes from fizzy to flat. And here's the idea. It changed the flavor of the world's most popular soft drink. Now, why in the world would they do that, Coca-Cola, back in 1985? Well, it was, uh, you know, sort of the post-World War II affluence, and Coke is the preferred cola by 60% of the market. Yet by 
1983, this pesky rival called Pepsi began to outsell Coke among young people. So as their market share, Coke's market share sunk to 24%, so CEO uh, Roberto Gozietta uh, orders a rethinking of the company's operations. Everything gets rethought. They're losing market share. What are we going to do? So even their century-old secret formula, formula, I should say, is reevaluated. So despite uh, their their long-range, uh, you know, uh, dominance as the real thing, as this bastion of cool-headed product stability, they're now sweating in the heat of competition, and they're ready to change their taste. So Coke researchers fan out across America armed with trial samples of new Coke, and it's a slightly sweeter, more Pepsi-like take on the uh, soda's traditional uh, flavor. So in blind taste tests, consumers choose new Coke over both uh, traditional Coke and Pepsi by wide margins. In focus groups, though, where you can actually get what they call qualitative data, opinions, uh, new Coke is met with uh, a lot less uh, enthusiasm. So... Coke management is still thirsty for a winner. They launched the new taste of Coca-Cola to mark the company's centennial celebration in 1985. And as I said, public reaction immediately goes from uh, fizzy to flat. Within days, the company receives over 400,000 distraught calls and angry letters. They brought in a psychiatrist to evaluate the tenor of the consumer calls, and he states that it sounds like people are mourning the loss of a loved one, even Fidel Castro. Uh, criticizes the move as another example of American decadence. So with uh, boycotts looming just three months after its uh, historic birth, new Coke is history. Traditionally formulated Coke is now termed Coca-Cola classic, and it gets reintroduced. (laughs) And after hundreds of millions of dollars spent testing and marketing new Coke, Executives conclude that they simply underestimated the public's deep, as they say, deep and abiding emotional attachment to the original. Now, the postscript on that real quick is that some conspiracy theorists contend that this was a plot by original Coke to reinvigorate sales of of what is now Coke Classic by by threatening to take it off the market. Uh, But there's really no proof of that. And and uh, it really was just a, the biggest, probably one of the biggest marketing blunders of all time. Yeah, H- having having experienced that firsthand, uh, yeah, that was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> it was, it was it wasn't bad. probably the smartest of uh, marketing. Uh, marketing. I remember Jeff. It was on the shelf. Uh, I was a, a younger guy at that time. I remember going to the supermarket. They had big end cap displays of new Coke. And I went in about a month later, and it was all gone, and, and Coke Classic was there on that same end cap. It didn't take long for them to get that to bums rush out the front door. Yeah. So tell, tell us a little bit more about what's, uh, what's in the book. Well, the book is just filled with all kinds of, of different stories. We have the story of the famed archaeologist whose discovery of the missing link is revealed to be a monkey jaw glued to a human skull. We have the U.S. president who starts each day skinny dipping in the Potomac. I'd love to tell you about that one in a moment. We have the hit singing duo who neglect to tell music fans that they can't really sing. Uh, We have the innovative snack food uh, company that markets cookies and crackers that can cause something called spontaneous elimination in the human body. That's probably not a good thing. But I would love to tell you about the skinny dipping president. uh, Sure. Sure. 
All right. So can I'm you curious because I, I haven't read about this one in history, so I'm, I'm curious about this one. Can you guess who it might be? Uh, it's a tough uh, one. <laughs> it's not no. Bill Clinton. It's not John Kennedy. <laughs> um, so we call this one the president's scandalous embarrassment, uh, to put a fine point on it. And this uh, just gives crack of dawn a whole new meaning because each morning President John Quincy Adams, yes, that dude, sneaks down to the Potomac, undresses, and proceeds to skinny dip with the ducks and geese, all the while naked as a jaybird. So a newspaper reporter named Anne Royal, yes, a female reporter, hears about it, hides out in the Potomac's foliage, and catches the unsuspecting president in the buff. So he, she takes his clothes and holds them ransom until he agrees to grant her a long-awaited interview that he's denied her. So he gets his clothes back. She gets the interview. Uh, She doesn't mention his ballsy, shall we say, morning escapades. Uh, But soon word gets out, as it always does in Washington, and now Adams is swimming in a pool of national ridicule and and, uh, shame. So as a result, the uh, Adams administration's policy agenda stalls, and he's soundly defeated for re-election in 1828 by Andrew Jackson. And in the end, Jeff, the electorate considered Adams sagging credibility and saggy backside and concludes the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> by the way, both uh, both Benjamin Franklin and Teddy Roosevelt were also said to be fans of skinny dipping. And I'm not sure that's a visual any of us want to have in our minds at this point. Yeah, no. I, I've got to ask, the, uh, the, the singing duo, are we talking about Millie Vanilli here? Oh, we are. Uh, you guessed that one right. Let me oh, tell you all I, about that I one. used to have to play their records back in my DJ days. Uh, I was a DJ in the clubs back in those days, too, uh, Jeff, and it was a, uh, yeah interesting thing. We call this one in the book, How to Lip Sync, S-I-N-K, a music career. And this the bad idea here is to create a, <laughs> imagine this, create a pop music group, <clears throat> excuse me, led by two singers who cannot sing. And this is uh, the genius. Yeah, but they looked it. good. You know, they, they, they really good. did. <laughs> you know, the whole thing was this guy, this producer named Frank Farian, and he's this German uh, record guy. And this is back in 1988, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's looking for the next big thing in music. And he's going all through the 80s Berlin club scene. And he happens upon models. These are male models. Fabrice Morvan and Rob Pilatus. And they're tearing up the dance floor. To most people, they're, you know, really nothing more than hunky, prancing uh, boy toys. But to this guy, Farian, they're the ideal front men for a new band. And soon the group Millie Vanilli is born. One problem, as I mentioned earlier, <laughs> neither, neither Rob nor Fab can sing. So to cover that rather uh, obvious and glaring deficiency, Farian secretly hires professional vocalists to record all Millie Vanilli songs. Uh, and he directs Rob and Fab to lip sync uh, to uh, these recordings whenever performing live. So Millie Vanilli takes off like a hip-hopping missile, and then just as quickly, the missile explodes. At a 1989 uh, MTV Live concert, Rob and Fab are <laughs> lip syncing and gyrating to their monster hit. I'm sure you remember, Girl, You Know It's yeah. True, uh, when the recording skips, forcing them to... <laughs> repeat the same line of the song over and over. So it was, girl, you know it. Girl, you know it. Girl, you know it. 
So the mm. Millie Vanilli fraud is exposed, and outraged fans demand that the musical imposters be strung up by their dreadlocks. Dozens of lawsuits follow. Arista Records breaks their recording contract. The band's Best New Artist Grammy Award is returned in shame, and their short-lived career is in disarray. Fab slips into obscurity and, and sadly, Rob dies of a drug overdose in 1998 but this lip-syncing thing has become a hot topic since then with everybody from uh, i call these the three b's britney bieber and beyonce mm -hmm. uh all being accused of fake singing a live performance and you, you got to think uh, jeff when you pay money to go see somebody it would be nice if they're actually performing at that moment and not just repeating or or acting out the record you already have yeah yeah what um what is the I really realize this is subjective. What is the weirdest fact, dumb fact, you or idea you guys came across? Well, let me. It, it's a hard one. It's a hard one to uh, to nail down. But let me give you one that I really like. You were a DJ. I was a DJ, and this bad idea comes from a DJ in Chicago. And this is called Disco Demolition Night. <laughs> and you got to hear this one. I don't know if you remember this one, Jeff, but. It's July of 1979, and we're at the high point of the platform shoe and, and uh, leisure suit era known as disco. And as popular as disco was, and in fact, as I mentioned, I was a club DJ uh, for part of the disco era, uh, lots of people hated disco and that whole kind of look-at-me disco attitude, especially diehard sports fans. So enter Wild Child Chicago Disc Jockey, Steve Dahl. And he comes up with this thing I mentioned called Disco Demolition Night. And here's how it works. You've got to hear this. For just 98 cents plus a vinyl disco record, you get into a Chicago White Sox baseball doubleheader. And between games, Dahl collects up the records, piles them up in the outfield, then uses explosives <laughs> to blow them to smithereens. Now, here's the problem. Upon detonation, a crater forms in the outfield. Vinyl shards fly through the air like shrapnel. A fire erupts. And fueled by booze and, shall we say, other uh, stimulants, uh, the disco-despising crowd then spills onto the field. Uh, people outside in the parking lot jump to turnstiles. They're on the field. Soon a full-scale riot is raging with fans wrecking batting cages, gouging the infield turf, burning banners. Uh, scores of people are injured. Uh, hundreds are arrested. And Detroit Tiger manager Sparky Anderson takes one look at the mayhem and uh, refuses to allow his team to go onto the field for game two of the doubleheader, which marks the last time an American League team has automatically forfeited and lost a game. So I thought that was a very strange. <laughs> and, and it could never happen today, right? Could never uh, happen today. That had to be late 70s, yeah. Sadly, late 70s. Sadly, I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> so am I. So am I. And that is a sad fact, isn't it? <laughs> My God. I've got, uh, I've got one more crazy story sure. if there's time. Sure. Okay. This is called the, and this was my second weirdest, I think. Uh, we call this Mr. Cane Toad's Wild Rise. So a, uh, this goes back to 1935. And a swarm of beetles is chopping away at Australia's sugarcane crop. So uh, local farmers and, and some companies uh, come up with the perfect solution. They import 100 or so cane toads from Hawaii. Now, this is a big toad known to eat large quantities of the pesky beetles. So problem solved, right? 
not quite. The farmers fail to take into consideration an important rule of physics, which is while beetles can scurry up to the top of the tall cane plants, the big, heavy, fat cane toads cannot. I mean, some of them are two feet across and weigh six or seven pounds. So the cane beetles uh, continue to destroy the sugar crop unchecked. And meanwhile, these voracious and poisonous, by the way, cane toads eat virtually everything else in sight. Uh, some grow, as I said, to over two feet in length, and they, they tip the scales at six pounds, and they live up to 35 years. So that's bad. But this is even worse. Females produce over 50,000 eggs per year. So the cane toads soon displace rabbits as Australia's biggest national pest. They're found rummaging in home garbage cans. They're in bushels of grocery store produce. They're in restaurant pantries, home cupboards, everywhere. They're crossing roads. Uh, today, the Australian cane toad population, starting at 100, is now 200 million with no solution in sight. But here's the, uh, here's, here's the solution some bright guy has just come up with. Uh, the latest hope for eradicating this uh, cane toad is a meat-eating ant that is native to Australia, which can be lured to toad, toad, I should say, habitats using, of all things, cat food. So you know that that's a highly scientific methodology for <laughs> You're rid of the, the 200 million cane toads. Oh, my God. It, the things that we found with this book, uh, Jeff, are just amazing. <laughs> oh, Mike, I certainly certainly appreciate your time, and it, it has been, uh, it, it's a it's an absolutely hilarious read. The book is out, I guess the audio book is also out. How can... Working available at usual places. How can folks find out more? Yeah, uh, the audiobook is available at audible.com, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available at 100worstideas.com. The printed version is also, you know, on Amazon. It, by law, right? If you write a book, it must be on Amazon at some point. <laughs> it's also at Barnes and Noble and fine retailers everywhere. That's Mike Smith, co author of 100 of the Worst Ideas in History Humanity's Thundering Brainstorms Turned Blundering brain farts. <laughs> For this edition of In the Author's Voice, I'm Jeff Williams.